Welcome to Visa Path to Access, the podcast which explores the world's digital economy, diving into the opportunities it represents and asking how we can overcome barriers so that everyone everywhere can enjoy the prosperity it offers. I'm your host, Scott Armstrong. Now, according to recent reports, 1.1 billion of the current 1.7 billion unbanked adults in the world own a mobile phone, which should be the key to unlocking access to the accelerating digital market. But it's not that simple. While some countries have made significant progress in terms of access and infrastructure, others still face challenges. So how do we tackle the divide and why is it so important we do so? What role do governments and private sectors have in ensuring full participation and access to the latest digital financial services? All questions I'm going to be putting to two leaders in their field, with my guest today on the podcast being Andrew Torre, Regional President for Samir with Visa, and Amir Qureshi, Head of Consumer, Agriculture and SME Banking at Habib Bank Limited, and a member of the Executive Committee, nonetheless. Thank you both for joining me today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome. Yeah. Now, it'd be great if we could give the audience just a little information about both of your roles, your superhero origin story, if you like. Tell me a little bit about your current roles at Visa and Habib Bank Limited and why access is so important. Andrew, if I may, I'm going to start with you because we've talked in the past and I know you're incredibly passionate about this mission, not just from the macro numbers and the opportunity, but from a very sort of human aspect of it. So if you just give us a brief overview of your role and why this mission is so passionately important to you. Sure. Uh, thank you, Scott. So as you said, I'm the uh, <clears throat> regional president for Central Europe, Middle East and Africa, which encompasses uh, 88 countries. And, uh, you know, why it's so important to me actually is um, I have a, a development training by background. So um, and when I when I left that, I used to work for the World Bank and came to work for the private sector. You know, I wanted something where I could still work to support economies, communities, um, uh, and and folks out there. And you know, Visa, our business is fundamentally based on access, right? We've got you know four billion uh, Visa credentials and eighty million merchants um, that really run uh, on our global commerce engine. Uh, so, and, and because of that, and because we have, have had that good fortune, we see empirically that including everyone everywhere uplifts everyone everywhere. Well, as a, a small business person myself, uh, here, here, uh, I'm a big believer in a rising tide lifting all boats. Uh, Amir, uh, again, I mean, you're passionate and you wanted to join this conversation today. What's, what's driving your thoughts and what's driving your emotions in this space? Thank you, Scott. So I think I think it's it's, it's quite clear for me. Um, you know, I, I am in uh, Pakistan, uh, working for the largest bank in Pakistan. Even though we market leaders literally in in every aspect of what we do, the country has so much potential, so much opportunity, so much headroom. But now, in terms of access to finance or capital, I think that's absolutely crucial. Uh, I'm quite passionate that we do our bit uh, to make sure that Pakistanis across the length and breadth of this country, whether it's uh, small business finance or agriculture or consumers, have the ability to access finance digitally quickly at the right time so you can improve lives and they can use the funds for whatever they need to. So that's what I'm really passionate about and, and I'm glad to be here for this discussion. There's a word I love there, which is potential as well, because I think this is 
one of those conversations where we talk about realizing potential. I mean, if we turn to, I mean, there's so much I want to get into with both of you today. So, Andrew, if I again may start with you, give me your perspectives on the impact of digital inclusion on individuals, uh, particularly for SMBs, you know, small and medium sized businesses, because they can be the lifeblood of many of the economies across this region. Absolutely. You know, so digital inclusion is critical. In fact, you know, according to WEF, about 15% of global GDP is based on the digital economy. And, you know, if it's 15% now, you know, by 2025, it should be about 25%. So there's this rapid shift. The challenge is that we still have 1.7 billion consumers uh, and hundreds of millions of micro and small um, enterprises like yours, Scott, um, that are, are potentially not part of the, you're definitely part of the digital economy, but, you know, unfortunately many aren't, um, yeah. you know, we have 60 million or so right here in our region. So there's a real cost, you know, at the macro level, and then we can talk about it at the micro level, at the macro level, you know, a 1% increase in electronic payments uh, in which you need to have access, you know, brings $67 billion more GDP just a 1%, $67 billion. And, you know, the benefits accrue to, to so many, you know, just in the Middle East and North Africa, you know, if we were just to have a thought starter, immediately get everyone to universal access in the Middle East and North Africa, in the, um, you know, really um, least developed economies, you know, in 20 to 25 years, it would increase the per capita income in these uh, economies by 40%. But if you think about consumers, it, it's natural, right? Once you give them access um, to savings where it's convenient and it's secure, um, you start to get them saving, you start to get them having access to credit. You know, for micro and small, small businesses, um, you know, the, the stakes are incredibly high as well. Um, you know, at a very simple, um, you know, level, if you think about it, if you're just in a face-to-face -face business and can only shop with the folks around you and only accept what's in their pockets and cash, it's constrained. When you open up the realm of digital commerce, there's 4 million buyers that we have in our network and other networks have um, similar, um, you know, levels of buyers as well. Um, and then if you think about the fact that they can accept digital payments, they can get more access to um, credit as a result of that and start to build their businesses, you know, it's life-changing. It's life-changing for consumers, you know, and for sellers. Well, it seems the perfect opportunity to bring you into this, Almir, again, and get your thoughts around this. Yep. You know, inclusion and financial inclusion being transformational. So, so let me let me just um, give you some context as to um, where I am in Pakistan, right? So you're a large country, right? You're a huge country in terms of population. But if you think about it, it's young. And it's growing, right? And and so um, just to give context, roughly 60% of the population of this country is below the age of 30, right? And over a third is below the age of 18, right? Um, and we're growing at about 2 2% plus year on year. And not only are we growing, uh, there's a huge unbanked population. The women in the workforce in the formal economy is less than 20 or 25%. Um, it's a hugely cash-based economy. Now you put all those four or five ingredients into the mix, you can kind of see as to how and why financial inclusion and followed by capital or, or credit is going to be so essential at every stage or at every segment of, of the country, be it small and micro businesses, be it agriculture uh, and you name it. So, so that is the scale or the price or the opportunity out there. And that's what we um, at our bank are trying to figure out over the last many years um, to get to, and interestingly, 
if you if you just look at the last four or five years as a bank, HBL, you know, we have as of last count 32 million customers, right? And about four or five years ago, that number was close to 10 or 11 million customers. So we put up more than three times the number of customers on our on our balance sheet, so to say, in a matter of less than five years. And all that has happened digitally. And, and so the next stage in this evolution really is it's not about just stopping the inclusion. It's about adding to the inclusion. And then what Andrew was saying earlier, giving the credit and the access to finance and connecting people to marketplaces. I think, I think that's the next big thing that we need to work on. It's going to be a long journey, but that's, but that's the, the next thing on the agenda, so to say. Andrew, I'll bring you back in as well, because I, mean, I find it fascinating as well. One of the, the real opportunities here is, you know, uh, Amir is talking about Pakistan, we look at Saudi Arabia. We've got a big young population who are ambitious and who, are, who flock to these tools if we can give them this kind of access. So there's this ambition that's waiting there to be realised. I really just wanted to get your thoughts about Visa's role in helping that young population of entrepreneurs and business people achieve those ambitions. Yeah, so um, I think you're talking about the role of, it's not just Visa's role, but we work in an ecosystem, right? We have a yes. partnership model and we don't get anything done without working with our partners. Um, uh, Honor and um, HBL are a really great example. We work with over 15,000 um, financial institutions across the globe. Um, but, and um, so we work with and partner with them and some of the things that HBL is doing, um, you know, we're privileged and honored to help power. So working with our partners is critical. Payments is a local business. So we want to work with those um, who are supporting uh, the consumers and merchants out there. The, the other big role is governments. We cannot, we started at the top talking about, um, you were talking about the UAE and the role of the government. So governments and regulators are critical. Um, and I think the UAE and Saudi Arabia, um, both with their digital roadmaps and uh, Saudi Arabia with their vision 2030, really laid out a digital strategy and agenda. And it was because there was deep belief and conviction um, in, in doing so. So that is critical. I think we've seen during the course of the pandemic, more governments are doing that. And that actually really sets the stage and hopefully supports the private sector um, as well to be able to uh, you know, embrace it as well. We've also seen the importance in the ecosystem of robust regulatory frameworks um, that are again, um, set high standards, but also allow the private sector to innovate. So having digital IDs, you can't bring on tons of small and micro merchants and consumers um, if you don't have national IDs and digital IDs, you know, if you have to default to someone walking into a place and trying to produce documents and having paper and wet signature, again, that's outside of the digital economy, right? So we want to bring people yeah. into the digital economy. We want to have clear, open data policies that make sense. Um, uh, and certainly we deeply believe as a, a company in data privacy and consumers having control um, over their data. We also have seen um, when governments not only do that, but then lead by example and digitize payments. And then the last thing is, you know, innovation and, you know, the private sector working together with governments in really fostering innovation. And we can talk more about that, but we do a lot uh, of work with governments, with our partners um, to create uh, innovation and support fintechs. If we're going to solve the problems of the digital economy, we need to bring in new technology players that are out there that are really equipped and nimble to digitally reach more consumers uh, and more small and micro businesses. 
uh, a number of issues that you raised there, which we'll circle back to because all fascinating points. Amir, I just wanted to come back to you. You know, when we look through the lens of financial institutions and Andrew's mentioned regulators, um, even down to academics as well as the government uh, and what role payment and tech companies have in this, um, as well as the financial institutions. What are your thoughts around this ecosystem in payments that we need to create to enable that financial access? So I think um, the way I see it uh, is, you know, having a safe, sound, reliable ecosystem is essentially what I would even call as a hygiene factor. It's just prerequisite. I mean, you cannot begin the conversation unless you almost guarantee that to the best global world standards. But I think, Scott, I want to move it slightly into a different discussion because the mm-hmm. ecosystem is not only about the technology platform, right? It's not about the connectivity of the various players in the chain, whether it's financial institutions, payment companies like like Andrews, fintechs, credit bureaus. I mean, all that is, like I said, essential and they are there and they have to be there and they've got to work seamlessly and securely in a safe manner. But at the end of the day, the entire conversation around this is around people, right? And that's how I see it, right? I think the most important thing is assuming the prerequisites are there, there's educational awareness at the ground level of what this ecosystem can provide for them, right? Yeah. Um, so, so there is no debate or no question about the fact that is it safe or sound? The question about it is if I use it, if I interact with it, um, will it be safe for me? Will my money be there? Will it, will, will if something goes wrong, can I, can I go to somebody? They worry about the fact of fraud. They worry about the fact that the data can be abused. And that is where companies or, or, or organizations like ourselves and Visa, we need to be out there not only educating and creating awareness, but ensuring we are there end to end to make sure that the customers don't suffer, they understand the issues, and when and if they get into trouble for any reason, you know, we stand behind them. Uh, because there are you know, there, there is so many people at, in the country who have never used um, a financial app. Right. Yeah. Um, and if they use it and the experiences are bad, uh, they'll never come back to it again. I mean, that's hugely important. Uh, and Andrew, I'm going to come to you. I mean, it reminds me of an old phrase, which is you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Uh, it's it's all very well coming up with these amazing fintech apps and this access. But ultimately, we have to convince businesses and people to use those tools. Um, and at the heart of that, I believe is trust. And I really wanted to get your both of your thoughts, but I'll start with you, Andrew, about how important just building that trust is, because we know in every form of business life, trust is hard to win and very easy to lose. So how are you both building trust into the conversation? Is it one of the foundation stones of this financial inclusion? Yeah, it's um it's a hundred percent part of the foundation. Um, you know, trust is core, absolutely core to our business. It's core to HBL's business. It's core to anyone's business that um, has the privilege to be able to store someone's money and then be able to make payments. Which is why we've invested ten billion dollars over the fa- last five years on security. We think about it in in three layers. Um, one, our own network to make sure VisaNet is hard and secure. And in fact, you know, every eleven seconds. Uh, there's a ransomware attack. And, you know, I think it was in last year, we had full data for it was in, in um, you know, 2021, $30 billion um, was um, was spent, um, was actually 
uh, handed over during uh, for ransomware attacks. You know, the other thing, um, you know, we think about is, you know, how do we make each transaction that we have the privilege of touching is safe and secure? So, you know, we've got tools uh, out there um, and to be able to support that. So we have a real-time scoring engine. So, you know, for example, if I were an HBL consumer um, and I were making a transaction, um, when in flight, before we sent that transaction to HBL to authorize, we provide a score to say, you know, is that something that Andrew Torrey is likely to be doing? And we use our advanced authorization looking at 500 different attributes. And, you know, because of that, um, you know, we saved about $26 billion or reduction in fraud in 2021. We also, you know, work really hard with all of our partners across the ecosystem because I was talking about these 15,000 financial institutions and all the consumers and merchants. So we make sure we have systems and standards um, uh, to be able to, um, you know, support data being stored securely. Uh, you know, we, we work um, across the globe to be able to, with our cyber threat and cyber fusion labs, to see if anything's happening and then, you know, work with our partners to make sure um, you know, it certainly doesn't become a challenge. And then you talked about the consumers uh, and the sellers. And, you know, that that's critical too, because, you know, all the things I was talking about are things to be able that, to support people that are already part of digital payments. And there are people who are not part of digital payments today, and they've got to change their habit. In order to change their habit, it's got to be better, and they have to have trust to what they're moving to. Yeah. Um, so we work um, with things like um, stay secure and stay safe campaigns where we're educating consumers uh, together with our partners. You know, the last thing I would say is we have for years and years invested in financial education um, and financial literacy. And a big part of that um, is to give the people, people tools and resources to understand and learn to trust how to manage their money, how to save and the benefits associated with that. I mean, that's interesting as well, because you were talking about education as well. Uh, and you talked about like such a big cash economy. How do you begin that conversation with those consumers or with those business people where you say, you know, now is the time to move from cash to digital? Um, and this is why you can trust us. How are you educating them as, uh, uh, you know, at HBL? So, so that's that's a long journey, right? So. Um... It's not something that can happen overnight. It's not happening overnight. But what we're seeing is, um, as part of that investment and conscious effort to create awareness and educate month on month, quarter on quarter, year on year, over the last five or six years in particular, um, for example, HBL, the largest card issuer in Pakistan, we are exponentially going up in terms of card usage and even debit card usage, right? And the way we're incentivizing and, 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 and getting customers to come and use these tools is by giving them the benefits, educating them the benefits, incentivizing them by giving them discounts, um, giving them functionalities which they would not have in, in terms of using cash only. For example, one of the biggest things we, we've done, which has been something that the customers have come back and told us about is, you know, when you go out to eat um, at the most prized restaurants in the country, for example, across the length of the Pakistan, if you have an HBL card, you might get a 5, 10, 15, 20% discount. Right, um, and Pakistanis love to go out and eat. And when they go there and they realize, you know, if you're going to get 10 or 20% off, they want that card, right? And what's happening is that uh, literally, uh, you know, our usage on the card on the restaurant segment has become um, the highest in the country. And then that's following up into other areas, whether it's through education payments or whether it's uh, lifestyle payments or whatever. So it's mm -hmm. it's a lot of work to be done, uh, which we are doing. It's not an easy one, but it's been worth it.
Interesting. I'm coming back to drinking, getting them to drink water, but you can get them to eat food. Yeah. Um, yes, you can. <laughs> as a, you know, as a, as a former journalist myself, I'm always looking at the world and the speed of innovation right now is dizzying. Uh, I'm just interested to know, because this is an evolution that should include everyone everywhere. What solutions or innovative initiatives that you're seeing that bridge that gap, bridge the digital divide. And um, Army, yeah. what are you seeing that's really working in terms of bridging the digital divide? So, so I'm glad I'm glad you're using the word bridging and I'm glad you're using the word not divide as much, right? It's, it's not about divide, it's the gap, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's, okay. it, and it is coming together. So I, I'll give you a very clear example of, of what we go through, right? So in Pakistan, we've noticed that you know, banks are very good, relatively speaking, on anti-money laundering, on, on KYC, on risk management, on compliance, on lending abilities, right? Uh, on the flip side, we are not the best in terms of when it comes to user experience, uh, customer interfaces, and so on. And that is where we notice the new agile fintechs are coming out and giving us a run mm -hmm. for our money, so to say, right? So they're giving they're doing that much better than most banks are doing it, right? But they're also what they're also doing is they're going into niche markets and segments and sub-segments and figuring out uh, the real challenges those populations have and giving them solutions. So I think the way you bridge that gap and not the divide really is if you bring the fintechs and the banks as an example together to work together to solve a common problem, and then you can expand this further. I mean, you need the regulator, the policymakers, you need payment companies like like uh, Andrews, but it's it's all about working together. And if I can sum it up in one word, it's really the only way you reduce or bridge that gap is through collaboration. Collaboration. It's uh, what fascinates me, and I have to bring you in, Andrew, here because I've obviously been lucky enough to visit you at your headquarters, the new headquarters in Dubai. Uh, and one of the key elements that you have there is that amazing innovation center. Uh, and I guess I, it's your, I invite you to tell us why you decided it was so important to have that innovation center as part of your headquarters. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's something that, you know, we talked, I talked a little bit about innovation and, uh, and there's also talked about working with, uh, with fintechs and with our partners, you know, ultimately some of the things I was talking about where we innovate at the center of our network, but if you're going to be relevant and solve problems on the ground, like HBL is trying to solve, um, you have to have innovation centers and invite them in to do things that are going to be relevant for Pakistan or for Kenya or for the UAE. And you know what you saw when you came to our innovation center is um, we have the ability to invite people in, but we have the abil ability there to do also virtual um you know co-designs and co-creations as well so you know that that's certainly one of the things and you know since um you know we're, we're on the subject about some of the things that are coming out and we've done in those centers is i think there's been some things that have been hugely important that have both um worked really well in where you and i are today in the uae and, and yeah. saudi arabia we're not in saudi arabia today i was there yesterday though but um and then if, if we move to places like pakistan where amir is and others that work. One of them is, um, you know, we talked about this digital divide. We created a, a technology called tokenization that works really well no matter where you are. I mean, initially, some of the first UK use cases for tokens. And for those who don't know, a token is is basically just 
a digital representation of your card. So it's a, it's a it's a different 16 digit number that's tied to that underlying if you, if you have a physical piece of plastic. And we'll get to how that can go away too. But it was done to be able to um, to really create the plumbing and infrastructure. Um, by the way, and if you get one of those tokens, it's completely devalued. So it brings trust and security as well. It is worthless if if you were able to even get that number. Um, so. Um, that's allowed us to do things like um, launch the pays, Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, which we've seen in our markets, especially during the pandemic, really increase. So we went from, you know, single digits to teens over the last three or four years in, in contactless transactions that were in the face-to-face -face environment to across the Gulf now, 96, 97. You, you rarely see cash, as you know, um, and you rarely see someone Sorry, taking dude. that physical piece of plastic out and, and sticking in it. But it's that same technology that allows us to fully digitize an economy like um, Kenya or Pakistan, where you can have someone just have a mobile wallet. So we talked about signing up, um, digitally getting um, a mobile wallet, being able to fund it. And in that, we can push a Visa virtual card, which is tokenized. And, and you know, you talked about the start, about 1.1 million people have, um, have uh, devices, you know, smartphones. So it allows us to scale to that group as well. And then we've done the same thing on the seller side as well, where we're bringing very low cost devices. So it works um, in some of the more developed economies and some of the emerging economies, innovation like this uh, that really work and scale across the digital economy for everyone. It's a, it's a, it's the new frontier. Um, Amir, I just really want to get from you as well. Just obviously, you're there in Pakistan. Um, what I love is learning from best practice and learning from what's really happening and, and really working out there. What are you seeing? Because I mean, you're there in Pakistan. What are you seeing there that's working, and or, or what are you seeing from around the region where you're going? We want some of that. Yes, yeah, so, so I think Pakistan is a key example or a key uh, key case study for this. So, so you know, I just want to go back, say maybe about three or four years. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then COVID came in 2020 and then kind of faded away about a year and a half ago. And we saw a huge uptick on digital usage, whether it's through app or, or, or through the internet. But what's interesting is that's continued to grow since then, right? Right. And, and if the only bright thing I saw out of this pandemic was digitization. And that's probably not only Pakistan, it's happened globally as well. But it's more stark in Pakistan because we needed it the most, right? And it's happening. Yeah. All right, and we are very fortunate uh, that Pakistan has a very forward-looking regulator called the State Bank of Pakistan, which prior to COVID had set up what we call a national financial inclusion strategy. The crux of that essentially was a digital first, mobile first type of a, a customer onboarding um, platform for, for the masses. But what I, I see as the next step in this evolution really is the lending piece, right? So we need to now graduate we need to now graduate from having mobile phones that just doing person-to-person -person or person-to-business payments and essentially convert that data or the experience the customer has over there to be able to give instant credit within minutes literally to small or micro businesses or individuals. And like I was mentioning earlier, there's a huge, what we call cash economy. Imagine if you could even bring 10, 15, 20% of that, digitize that, use that data, give financial access to those people to get small businesses. And here I'm not talking about the nano loans of seven, 14, 30 day loans, right? I'm talking about two, three, four, five, ten thousand $10,000, which are really needed for working capital loans for small businesses 
to hire people yeah. and grow grow their wealth, right? And I think that's the, that's the next big thing that we should be working at. And we come back to Andrew as well about this best practice. And we, we come back to my very selfish perspective about those smaller, medium-sized businesses because they are such a big part of economies. What other things are you seeing or what are you excited that's coming down the tracks that's really going to make our lives as entrepreneurs easier and better? So there's um you know there's there's a couple of things I think um something that um you know um, Amir talked about is critical is the access to capital um so yeah. that is a very important hook to um, get them to digitize so you know one of the things that I was alluding to earlier is um you know being able um, for small sellers to be able to accept payments uh, from their customers so. Um, and, you know, traditionally it takes a, it's a kind of a costly, complicated uh, point of sale solution if you're a small seller and, and it may not work as well in the environment where you are, you know, that, that thing you see generally in, in supermarkets, et cetera. So we've created a solution called um, the Visa Acceptance Cloud, where basically we put what's in those machines, that software is up in a cloud that we host. Um, and we allow our clients and partners to take that software and, you know, Scott, we can put it on your mobile phone um, um, so that you can start accepting payments and you can accept payments physically. Um, we also have solutions where you could be able to kick off, um, you know, just, um, you know, through WhatsApp or something, an invoice and request payment and have someone, a uh, consumer push money uh, directly back to you. So um, we're starting to see using technology uh, and using some of the capabilities we have and the capabilities our partners have, you know, in fintechs out there um, to be able to really make it um, cost efficient um, for them to be able to go out and serve, you know, all of these uh, unique merchant needs. So we're really excited about, you know, seeing that next wave of growth. I've loved this conversation. I mean, some of the key words that's really come through for me have been, Partnership, collaboration, trust, innovation. Uh, and I guess if anyone in the audience who's tuning in has any doubts about how big an opportunity this is, I mean, I read a report recently that said the World Economic Forum had valued the global digital economy in 2021 at $14.5 trillion. But just by 2025, which is not that far away, we're up to $20.8 trillion. That to me, underlines the last word I think is so important in this conversation, which is opportunity. Um, Andrew, Ahmet, thank you so much today for joining the Visa Path to Access podcast. I've loved the conversation. Uh, to the audience, I've been your host, Scott Armstrong. And if you've enjoyed today's conversation as much as me, then stay tuned because we'll be back with another episode very soon. Ahmet, Andrew, thank you so much. Mm -hmm.